Yeah, I reckon I've carved at least a dozen of these. Made my first one for my my baby boy. Well, it's not Well, <laughs> it's gonna be an angel. At least the way I remember it. It was a long time ago. See, my, my, my boy, well, before he got born, I really didn't know who he was gonna look like. I worried me. Well, see, his, his mama, she found out she was pregnant. I didn't want to embarrass her. Baby wasn't mine. I just thought I was gonna let it go without making a fuss, you know? But then one night I had this dream and there was an angel in it. And that angel, he told me I shouldn't be scared to marry that woman because it, uh, it was God's baby that Mary was having. You know, around here, we, we, we got a custom. When a baby gets born, the daddy, he puts that baby across his knees. And that's his way of telling everybody that that baby is his. Well, it took a while for my heart to kind of get used to the idea that that baby is just on loan to me. That he was special. But, uh, well, I made room for him. And when he got born, I did what any daddy would do. I put that boy on my knee. I gave him a name. I called him mine. But he grew up to a fine boy. Now, all these years later, well, you probably heard about him. <laughs> He's grown into a fine man. You know, every time I call one of these, I remember what that angel told me. That Mary's boy, my, my boy, we, we're supposed to call him God with us. God with us. Yeah. I reckon that's all I've ever really needed to know. So you ask me who my boy looks like, I'll tell you. He looks like God. We are in our third week of our Advent series, celebrating, obviously, the third week of Advent in anticipation of our celebration of Christmas, the day when traditionally the church celebrates the birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We celebrate Advent. It's a word that means coming because it reminds us that Jesus came once as a baby but it also starts to tune our hearts to the reality that there will be a second advent, a second coming of Jesus Christ, that he will return for his church. And therefore, all of the waiting, all of the expecting, all of the anticipation that you start to feel as we move towards Christmas ought to serve to point us to a, a greater hope. Something that is far beyond presence or lights or trees or even family time. It serves to point us to the reality that we wait and hope for the return of Jesus Christ. 
That, that's part of the whole perspective of Advent, that we're waiting for His coming back. Because the first time He came as He came as a baby, and the next time He comes, He will return as a triumphant King. As we've walked in this series entitled, What Child Is This?, we've taken the theme from the first line in the title of the hymn written by William Chatterson Dix in 1865. The hymn poses an important question worth pondering as it works through the various lines of the hymn. Dix says, what child is this? He considers this baby born in Bethlehem and starts to look at it from different perspectives. And if you pay pay close attention to the hymn, you might notice that it considers Mary the mother of Jesus. And then you might pick up that it considers the shepherds, and it considers the wise men, and it considers the angels, and it even considers the livestock. But it does fail to consider one of the major characters. For the hymn never mentions Joseph, the, early fa- the earthly father of Jesus. And of course, it's worth noting that Mark, the gospel writer, doesn't mention him either. But with that pointed out, Matthew, Luke, and John all point to Joseph by name, calling him the father of Jesus. So as you might have figured out from our video, Joseph will be our theme this week. So pull out a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have one, I really would encourage you to pull one out. We got a little bit of hard work to do in the Bible this morning. It'd be helpful to have the text sitting in front of you because you're going to have to look at it a little bit more than I can show you on a screen. We're digging into genealogies. It's a lot of fun. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, not only is this the beginning of of the book of Matthew. This is also the first verse in the New Testament. And so as Matthew begins his gospel, he begins with a phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now to you, that phrase probably doesn't elicit a whole lot of other things other than possibly boredom. Or it's a list, let's skip it. Because i got a sneaking suspicion with most of us, I say us, I'm included on this list. We come to the scriptures, you get to a genealogy, and you go, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, oh, I'll start reading again. But the list matters, and why this list matters is because this phrase would have meant something to a Jewish audience. In fact, the first century readers would have understood that Matthew is coming out of the gate in his gospel with a strong appeal for Jesus. Because this phrase is used multiple times in the Old Testament, and it's always used to give legitimacy and backing to the person it points to. For example, the last one we find in the Old Testament is found in the book of Ruth. And it serves to tie Ruth into the genealogy of David to show a greater significance to her story. And so in Matthew 1, when Matthew uses it in reference to Jesus, he's making a very specific claim about Jesus. A claim 
using a Jewish argument to a Jewish audience that we get to be party to, so let's dig into it some more. Because what Matthew is doing is he's trying to tie both David and Abraham to Jesus. Asserting that Jesus is connected to these forefathers of the faith. And then by calling him the son of David or the son of Abraham, he's taking an additional step. What Matthew is trying to show to this audience, he's trying to tie Jesus to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He's trying to tie Jesus to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. Therefore, making the claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of both covenants. It's a messianic claim. And of course, you read verse 1, and it would beg any first century Jew to ask, how? It's like any good teacher, Matthew shows his work. Much like an elementary school would make their students show their math homework. Something we work on a lot at home. Matthew shows his work. So let's pick it up in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadab. I can't even say it, I'm talking too fast. Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, we need to pause for a second because we need to point some things out quickly. The first of which is Matthew is establishing the line between Abraham and David. And nobody, and I mean nobody in his original audience would have ever questioned that. But what's fascinating is that David, that Matthew includes some very interesting inclusions. Most specifically, he mentions women in his genealogy, which in and of itself would have been extraordinary. But you have to consider the four women, because these are not random inclusions. Let me give you the list. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And if you consider these four women, it has to be pointed out, and this would not have been lost on the early audience, that two of these women are foreigners. That they weren't of the household of God. They didn't belong. They were Gentiles. And of course, you'd also have to point out that three of them, the only stories that we know are stories that are marked with serious and grievous sin according to the Scriptures. And what that does for us is it starts to foreshadow something for us. Their inclusion starts to point to something that you're going to see in Jesus and something that Matthew is going to want to make sure you see and is plain to you even at the beginning of his gospel. That Jesus is going to include sinners into the family of God. That Jesus is going to bring in outsiders. He's going to bring in foreigners. 
He's going to bring in people who don't belong. And He's going to fold them in. Because Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. How do we know that? Because the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. We could get Hebrew and call it Yeshua if you want. But the name literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And Matthew will go further in his gospel to even record that the Son of Man came to save that which is lost. So friends, if Rahab, the prostitute, and Tamar, who acted like a prostitute, this is part of the reason why you got to know and understand your Old Testament. Because these are not amazing women by any stretch if you study the text. These are fallen sinners. If, if these women could be in the family of God, and not just in the family, consider that they're in the published family of God. That Matthew's putting them right in front and center in his genealogy, that it is to be put on display that you and I can be in his family too. And it doesn't matter your sin. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you've been through, what you've experienced, how dirty you might feel or have been. Because what you find in both of these women is faith. That they believed in God. That they believed in Jesus and were saved. And for that is just as true for them as it is for us. That anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ can be saved. No one is to be excluded. Doesn't matter your past or what you've been through. You could hardly outsend some of the people on this list. Matthew's building a particular and specific idea as he's giving you this genealogy. So let's pick it up in verse 7 as Matthew takes us from Solomon to Jesus. And just so you know, the names are about to get a whole lot harder. So be patient with me. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So he's now moving you. He's moved you from Abraham to David. And now he's taking you from David to the deportation to Babylon. He's trying to point you now to the prophets. That's what you see. And so you're going to hear books, the major prophets all written here. He's going to try to point you to the prophetic writings to the new covenant. You'll see that here in a minute. He picks it up in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah, the father of Shethiel, and Shethiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Elakim, 
and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and then finally in verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. What Matthew is doing here is he's pointing, using the whole Old Testament, he's pointing us to Jesus Christ. He's pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abraham, which you could read in Genesis 12 and 15. He's pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David, which you could read in 2 Samuel 7. And he's even pointing out to Jesus being the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets, including the new covenant, which you'd find in Jeremiah. And so in verse 17, Matthew sums this up and says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, at least for a moment, academically, we should pause and say this is not a complete genealogy. You want to study your Bibles, you'd find that there are people missing, but that's not what Matthew claims. Matthew's not claiming that this is a, a direct genealogy. It's not claiming it's complete. He's just giving you 14 generations and three lists. Because his lists matter. And they exist for a purpose. And it's to show that Jesus was a descendant of David. And it's to show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And it's to show the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant. But far more than that, and if you've been tuning out, please plug in here. It serves to give proof that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Which means Jesus has the legal right to claim to be the king of Israel, to truly, legally be the king of the Jews. And why does he have that legal right? Because he was legally adopted by Joseph, who was in the line of David. And therefore, when Jesus is adopted by Joseph, it not only makes Jesus his legal son, but it also makes him a legitimate heir. So what you find then in the next seven verses is Matthew. In verses 18 and following, as Matthew's been building this case forward, is not merely the birth of Jesus, which is extraordinary, and I'm not trying to take away from that at all. What you find is a continuation of a legal case for Jesus being the Messiah, which means the next seven verses serve to be the legal adoption story of Jesus as Joseph adopts him as his own son, something we cannot take for granted in the text. So let's wander into it, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. No doubt you're familiar with this story. Mary likely a 
12, 13, 14-year-old girl, Joseph, probably high teens, 18, 19, 20, are engaged. They're planning to get married, and yet before they get married, he finds out that Mary is pregnant. A fact that would have brought so much shame and dishonor onto Mary that would get transferred onto Joseph should he marry her. And so in verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because the baby wasn't his. And in an honor and shame culture, bringing this much shame on your family would be unheard of. To hold a baby and to say, this one is mine when it's not, bring shame on your family. So what ought to happen in this story, according to the customs, is you'd say no, and you'd not only banish the woman, you'd banish the child. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you're familiar with their culture, when the holy, when the angel shows up and says, you shall call his name Jesus, the angel's not joking around. The angel's making a very direct claim to him. You're going to take him, you're going to call him yours, and you're going to own up to all of it. For that's what it means when a, a man in that culture named a child. You'd find if you study Roman culture that when a baby was born, they would take the baby to the father. Father would make a decision. Will I receive this child? If he does, he lays it on his lap and he names it. If he doesn't, the baby's actually thrown out, probably to die in a ditch. So when he says, you'll take him, you'll call his name Jesus. It's this idea of adoption. You're going to own it. You're going to take this which could die which could be hopeless, and you're going to give it hope. You're going to bring it in, and it's going to receive all of the benefits of being in your family. It's going to be yours. That's the call the angel puts on Joseph. So in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It's Isaiah 7:14, by the way. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph has a dream. And God must have been so real and so vivid in that dream because that dream spawns in him such a crazy countercultural obedience. Something that would not have made even a minute of sense to anyone in his entire family. Because as verse 24 continues, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. 
that phrase is huge. Being a pastor, I get to do a lot of weddings from time to time. There's a phrase that happens in weddings that nobody really picks up on. There's a huge part of a wedding where it says, who gives his father, who gives his daughter to this man? And the line shows up is, the mother and I do. And it's a huge line everyone just glazes over. It's that moment, it's a huge moment at a wedding where a father passes on his right of his daughter on to some other guy. Now, should I ever tell you this story, and I start to sound really skeptical of the other guys because I start to think about giving away my own daughters. And I'm not ready to give them to any schmuck. And should any of your sons start chasing my daughters and I start talking about them like smucks, it's okay, I like you. It's your kids I'm worried about. This is one of those lines that we could be tended to just glaze over and move past. But it means something. And he called his name Jesus. Because that moment is the moment when Joseph adopts him. When he holds him on his lap and names him. When he gives him a name. What you see in that phrase is that Joseph is formally adopting Jesus. Therefore, he's claiming to be his father. He's claiming his boy will forever be his son. It's an easy sentence to miss. But when you follow Matthew's intention with his genealogy, and you see it through the birth narrative all the way through verse 25, you see the conclusion to his argument. That Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Why? Because Joseph adopted him. So when we ask the question, who is this child? One answer is this. He was an adopted child. Because if you follow that parallel all the way through, you would see a baby in a culture who should have been thrown away who should have been cast aside and yet is adopted into a royal family and will be a king and will receive all the benefits of a kingly family and will receive all the blessings of being in the line of David and will receive the inheritance of his father and will receive all of the blessings and benefits of his daddy. And much like the shepherds forecasting his coming, to the great shepherd. His adoption also serves to show us something far greater. Because this little picture you see in Joseph adopting Jesus forecasts for us that he wasn't just adopted. He was the adopted adopter. Consider Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. This is a Christmas passage, right? God sent His Son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul writes to the church in Galatia that God sent His Son so that you and I could be received and we could be adopted as sons. Jesus came so that you and I could be adopted 
by the Father. That we could be brought into His family. That He would claim us as His children. That He'd be our Father. And we would receive all of the blessings of having a Father. All of the benefits of having a Heavenly Father. All of the overwhelming grace of having a Father. Consider what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Boy, is that a pregnant sentence. Jesus was not sent just so that you'd be adopted. Jesus was sent so that you'd be the means by which you are adopted by. He's the very means of your adoption because... It accomplishes the will of the Father. The Father says, I want them. I want those babies. I want them to be mine. Since the Son, Jesus is the means by which we are adopted. It accomplishes God's will. So Paul writes to the Romans. Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Friends, I've just started poking on this, but the New Testament is ripe with adoption language about you and me. That we have a daddy. That's what Abba means. It's a personal name for a father. That we have a good and a loving Father who is precious to us, who is near to us. That's why He's our Daddy. And we're His children. But beyond that, we're also His heirs and His co-heirs. And to step even further into even further adoption language, I want you to consider Revelation 2.17. This is what it says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus talking to the churches in the book of Revelation. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. But this is what I want you to cue in on. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's adoption language. It's the responsibility of a father to name his kids. It's in the moment that a father names his kids that he claims them. You know, according to Revelation 2.17, your father has named you. I have three kids in my family. They all have nicknames. They're all special to me. I love my kids so much, and each of them has a special name that I call them. And they know, because they're mine. And if you take your Bible literally, when you arrive in heaven, 
and God the Father sees you, He's going to treat you just like a good father, just like a good daddy, and He's going to have a special, precious little nickname for you. That's what the text tells us. And the sweetest part is, when you get there, you're going to know it. You're going to know He's your daddy. And you're going to recognize that. If you have a father who loves you in such a rich and deep and overwhelming manner that he would adopt you and that he would send his son to be born as a human so that he could die on a cross so that the means of the cross would be your adoption back to the father. So as you consider this Advent season and ask what child is this, be reminded that Jesus was an adopted adopter. That through coming to earth as a baby, the little picture of the manger is just a picture that God loves you so much that He didn't want to leave you where you were. But instead, He sends His Son on a mission not only to bring you home, not only to save you, but also to adopt you so that you might receive all of the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the encouragement by having a really, really awesome Father in Heaven. What child is this? He's an adopted adopter. Let me pray. Father, as we consider Christmas, there are so many things about this season that can we can get caught up in. There's so many things about this season that can make us busy. There's so many things that can get us all whirled up and frustrated. And yet when we take the time to lean into Your Word, to lean into Your Son, to realize that that baby wasn't just a baby, that He was a shepherd to guide us and to lead us, to keep us safe, that He was the Anointed One, the One who would be sent to save us from our sins. To protect us from the dangers that we would put ourselves in. To heal us and to forgive us. And that He was the Adopted Adopter who would bring us in to the family of God. May we be reminded how loved we are by our Heavenly Father who would send His Son as the means of our adoption. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.